Amela Ena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, a show where women in tech talk about technology. What is DevOps? How does it relate to operations and software development? Bridget Crumhout, principal technologist for Cloud Foundry at Pivotal, answers these questions. Bridget explained what operations engineering is and what she used to work on when she was focused in this area. We then talked about how DevOps emerged and how it differs from operations. At the end, we talked about voice ops and chat ops and the future of DevOps. If you have any feedback, please write a review on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. Bridget Crumhout, Principal Technologist for Cloud Foundry at Pivotal, is joining us today. Bridget, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You work on DevOps and lead the DevOps Days organization globally. But before this, you worked for 15 years in operations, which you've said in the past, it was part of your identity. <laughs> what is operations engineering? That's a great question. I guess I would say that people focus a lot on software development. But the amount of time it takes to create a piece of software and put it out in the world is dwarfed by how long that software is often in production running. And keeping software operating correctly is a non-trivial task. And it's an actual specialist subfield that people do focus on. When A lot of times people think of it in terms of um, reacting to outages or reacting to being paged. But there's a lot of proactive work that goes into ops, things like uh, capacity planning and scaling, um, setting up observable infrastructure such that you can actually query and get information out of your infrastructure about what it's doing. What part of it is it that makes it non-trivial? The fact that it's, it's easy to take a, a simple app and say, oh, look, you know, hello world, this works, let's deploy this to production. But apps in production, um, any kind of, you know, uh, software operating in production is going to have inputs that you didn't expect. It's going to have failure states that you didn't expect. It's impossible to perfectly model in a development or test environment the kind of, whether it's problems on the network or unexpected inputs from users or just the confluence of, you know, a cascading series of failures that even all taken on their own wouldn't necessarily have been catastrophic, but can be catastrophic when all put together in a production environment. Uh, so it's, it's a very, it's a complex web of interoperating components that mm -hmm. create today's, you know, like, quote unquote, web scale infrastructure. And back when you were in operations engineering, like you mentioned earlier, what a lot of people first think of is reacting to the outages. Mm -hmm. Do you remember other examples of issues that you had to investigate? Sure, absolutely. I mean, sometimes, again, it's a question of, you know, capacity or classic back pressure. Say you have, you know, a queue that's filling up or a disk or whatever. Um, I would say, like, 
sometimes it's a planning issue. Like we had for um, one time a, a couple jobs ago, I was working someplace where we were the dreaded third-party cookie on retailer sites. And during shopping holiday, we were on the front page of a major U.S. toys website. And um, we didn't realize, well, we sort of realized, but there was a there was a change freeze. So they didn't want us to change anything. And so our suspicion that perhaps it would be a bad thing that we were writing, um, you know, session tokens into the same, you know, MongoDB that we were also serving content out of. Oh, guess what? Like the global write lock is really a read write lock. And we didn't fully realize this until we had such a slowdown in, you know, being able to serve production traffic that it was essentially an outage, you know, on Cyber Monday. Mm -hmm. And we had to hotfix it, like deploy a change out to production immediately. Oh, guess that change freeze was only a freeze until it was actually an emergency, you know. Oh, wow. So it's, it's stuff like that where, you know, obviously you don't want your site to be down or your service to be down or your customers to be affected or your, um, you know, your business to be losing money. Like a lot of times in a reactive capacity, operations engineers are working under the pressures of if you don't fix this, one of those terrible things or multiple of those terrible things will happen. So it does, it tends to lead to a very, um, you know, paranoid and cautious sort of mindset just because you know, if you do something wrong, there could be very annoying consequences that can lead to lost sleep or lost jobs or startups failing or whatever. <laughs> Loss of millions of dollars, too. It's possible. <laughs> and I saw that Kelsey Hightower tweeted this ops lock-in. When your organization cannot innovate faster than your ops team, will allow or willing to support? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think Kelsey makes a really good point there. And this is what um, I'm, I'm, like you mentioned before, I'm active in the DevOps movement. And this is what I've been, you know, uh, out there talking to people about over the last few years, which is I definitely historically was um, in the camp of the ops person who did not want the developers to YOLO anything out to production because it would lead to problems and lost sleep or whatever. But what I found is that when your operations team is not ready to make the kind of changes that the business requires or that your organization needs to move forward, what happens is that development and other teams treat ops as damage and route around them, whether they're just going to run out to take a credit card and go to public cloud or run something on a, you know, quote unquote server under their desk. Like the reality of most organizations today is that whatever the demands of your organization are, people are going to try to meet those. They're going to be going for that local optimization, even if it's not to the best interest of the business. And even if it's not what the team that's trying to hold some sort of reins or some sort of control over things um, is asking for or wants. And so like the, the path past that is for the ops team to stop being the department of no and start enabling the goals of the rest of the organization by embedding with them, by pairing with them, by having, you know, cross-functional teams, by letting go of the, we are the gatekeepers instead saying, we are the specialists who can help you scale. We want to enable you. It's a, it's a giant attitude shift. Is this what allowed DevOps to emerge, this need for a closer collaboration from ops and software developers? 
You know, I, it's one of those things where as an emergent phenomenon, it's hard to say that there's one cause, but it's definitely true, as you're saying, that as our systems have gotten more and more complex and as the demands of, you know, the, the wider world have gotten more and more robust and more and more uh, time sensitive, it's no longer okay for you to do the annual release or the quarterly release because your competitors or your user base are going to demand faster responsiveness. I mean, we see this everywhere. We see this um, everything from government services to businesses, you know, nonprofits to academia. Everybody wants something better and they want it now. Mm-hmm. And telling them that they can have it when you do a release in October is just not going to cut it. And so I think that's where a lot of the desire to have um, the practices of agile software development be applied to IT operations is a a classic conversation that um, Andrew Clay Schaefer and Patrick Dubois had at the Agile conference in 2008. And that turned into the DevOps Days conferences Patrick Dubois started in Belgium in 2009. So this has been an ongoing conversation in our industry about how we iterate and improve more quickly in our IT operations with the same kinds of attitudes that people have been using to iterate and improve in software development. So what you're saying is ops evolved to DevOps, which means taking some of the principles software developers use, like agile development, into ops yeah. for better product development. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a way we can look at it. I think a lot of times when there's discussions of DevOps, people get into a definition of DevOps and it can get a little funny. And I guess I'll just say that I don't think DevOps equals ops so much as I think that it equals the cross-team collaboration Mm -hmm. that allows us to actually operate software in the modern era. Since we've, we've all seen, we've all gone to, you know, some website that it's not the Googles or Facebooks of the world where we know they're going to be at, but it's some website where, you know, you have to pay a bill or something and you go on there on a Sunday at 2 p.m. and it says, we're doing maintenance for the next three hours. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean you're down for maintenance? <laughs> and like the idea is that p- people don't have to be down for maintenance anymore. Yeah. Um, if they're, if they're following, you know, modern operability practices. So, mm-hmm. What I've seen in the past is a website would say, we've disabled signing up new users because we're getting a lot of requests for new users. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've seen in the past. And with infrastructure as a service and platform as a service, these two things have taken away some of the debugging challenges and operations so that now these teams are more productive or they can focus on other things. What are some of those other things they can do now instead of putting out fires and things like that? Sure. Well, I mean, I should probably be perfectly honest and say there will always be fires, unfortunately. (laughs) But you're right. It's a question of where in the stack um, you're going to enter and say, this is where we're going to draw like that line of abstraction. Because... I mean, a hundred years ago, a lot of times people would be, you know, generating their own electricity or like building everything by hand. And even, you know, 20 years ago, people might be buying a whole bunch of parts and building their computer by hand. Most of us probably just buy a laptop that's the way we want it at this point. 
some people still do specialized, you know, build it themselves at home. But there is a point at which things become a commodity. Mm-hmm. And so for the places where, and again, like naysayers will say, well, wait a minute. A lot of people are like, you know, Google and Facebook build everything in their data centers. Sure, absolutely, at that scale. But a lot of organizations don't need to do that stuff. And so the things that they can focus on, like what you're mentioning, is the things that add value to their specific needs. Like, for example, um, I can tell you about Allstate is a Pivotal customer. They use Pivotal Cloud Foundry as their platform so that on top of that, they can focus on building a connected car app. Now, they have very talented engineers. They could certainly build a platform. However, if they spent their time building a platform, then they would not be building a connected car app that would add more value for their specific enterprise. I see. So it's a, it's a question of like focusing on the things that add the most value for your organization. And if the thing that adds the most value for your organization is, you know, uh, custom assembling hardware or custom assembling an operating system or whatever, that very well might be. I'm not going to say that that's wrong in every case, but in many people's cases, that's not the best way for them to add value for their organization. Does that make sense? Yes. It's a question of where it makes sense for you to put your limited, because it's always going to be limited, uh, time and effort and engineering talent. So what you're saying is you can focus on the core problem that you're tackling and then, for example, use Cloud Foundry sure, and let that handle the servers at the beginning and things like that and... Maybe later on you want to have your own in-house systems, like we're seeing Dropbox because they've grown so much, but now it's it's not needed as it was 20 years ago, for example. Sure. And I mean, Drop, Dropbox's case, I think, is interesting because in a lot of these companies, they, they kind of make that calculation. Their case was, you know, public cloud versus, um, you know, uh, data centers that they control. And that's one of those things where there's always trade-offs. And you have to decide what you want to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, because the customers that we usually deal with, um, you know, on the commercial side of like, you know, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, those customers often have their own data centers with a bunch of virtual machines. And they've been using some sort of ticketing system to let developers request virtual machines. And then the developer gets a virtual machine and configures it. Wow. And then there's kind of this, well, how do we make sure that this configuration is replicated in production? And then what if we want to burst into the public cloud, you know, at periods of high traffic? And that sort of thing requires a lot of engineering effort spent on that glue that is, again, necessary, but it doesn't, um, materially add to their like applications um, competitive value. Yeah. So that's where again it's always trade offs. But for a lot of people who start using things, and it again it doesn't have to be Pivotal Cloud Foundry. They could be using um, you know products from anybody from you know Red Hat to one of the many Kubernetes distributions out there. There's actually, by the way, at Google Next, Google announced that um, Pivotal and Google are collaborating on a Kubo. It's a to kind of spin up Kubernetes clusters ad hoc. So there's a lot of things like that, that mm-hmm. when you're trying to figure out what's right for your organization, it's really, really tempting to fall into resume-driven development. <laughs> you know, like, this would be really fun. I want to play with it. Let's convince my company to use it. Like, that's so common. Yeah. It's so common. I've totally been guilty of that. But it, it's not necessarily the 
the way your company is going to win or, you know, achieve your goals in the marketplace. So, and I shouldn't say company because of course they're a nonprofit and government and whatnot organizations too, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, yes, totally. <laughs> and another thing that I want to talk about is I've seen roles getting partially merged. For example, me and one team, I came on as a software engineer, but at one point we took on some of the pager duty tasks and on-call and troubleshooting incidents. And I saw some people found that interesting, sort of like a detective mm -hmm. type of work, tracking down the root <laughs> cause, while others are not very happy with this change. What do you think about this approach? Yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Because especially if you sign up for a job, and you did not expect it to page you at three in the morning, and now it pages you at three in the morning a lot, and you had no choices to that matter, that can be bad for retention. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of value in having people who understand a subsystem very well be the ones who are paged when that subsystem is misbehaving. Mm -hmm. But is it valuable for them to get paged, and really it's just that your data center is overheating? Like, there's a very, I think there's a very important component there that if you're going to expect uh, a full team to all be on call for their application, then I think it's crucial to make sure that you're monitoring your observability, your telemetry is such that people will only get alerted for something that they could actually fix and B, something that it is essential to have human intervention at that moment. Like there's a lot of alert fatigue out there. I'm actually giving a talk about this at Monitorama um, called I Volunteer as Tribute. <laughs> Just talking about, you know, throwing yourself on that, um, you know, pyre of on-call. And it's like, you don't have to um, throw human misery at bad infrastructure. Like you can invest in making your infrastructure better so that the only time humans are going to need to intervene is when there's some, a real problem that requires their judgment and their intervention. I mean, that's, that's kind of how you solve, I think, that's how you solve the, oh, but the developers don't want to be on call. It's like, well, if be on call means the developer is the point person to make sure that their application is behaving and they're only alerted after hours if it's absolutely urgent, that's really different than they get paged because the AWS stuff didn't auto-scale properly and they're not happy about that. And this brings me to the future of DevOps. One thing that I saw at Velocity last year was this concept of chat ops, mm -hmm. which involves using a chat interface like Slack, and you incorporate a bot, and the bot, depending on how you program it, it can learn, like you said, to identify. Bridget knows about this area. She has solved incidents in the past related to this. We'll ping her mm -hmm. and things like that. What is your thought on this? chat integration with Slack, for example? Do, do we really need a system like this? Um, I think that autonomous agents that may have, you know, kind of a, a human face or a human demeanor, but are not people, but are acting, you know, as agents to query and interact with are useful. I would, I guess I would say just very much like how, you know, was artificial intelligence was around when I was in college in the 90s 
And, you know, Marvin Minsky was, what, the 60s or something? It's like, it's not even like this stuff is new, but suddenly we rebranded machine learning and everyone is really excited. Yeah. So I guess I've I've seen hype around, um, you know, AI coming to save us slash take our jobs slash whatever. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, well, yes, first of all, if your job is, like, schlepping stuff around in a warehouse, it, it probably is taking your jobs. And if your job is driving a truck, yeah, it's probably... And I mean, that's, that's an entirely different rant about, you know, universal basic income and investing in humans. But, but in terms of uh, that being the future, I think it may be a little too reductive for me to say, yes, the future is we're talking to computer, please do X. Because honestly, we would prefer if the thing can be remediated by an autonomous agent, that the autonomous agent just remediates the problem and put something in the Slack channel that we'll see in the morning, you know? Yeah. But in terms of, like, voice control or uh, talking to something to uh, get answers about your, you know, whatever problem it is you're trying to debug, maybe, though I think that if you want futuristic debugging, I, I mean, for my money, and granted, I have no money whatsoever invested in this, but... I, I do know that you you just had Charity Majors from Honeycomb on the podcast. Yes, yes. And something like that, the the future of debugging, I would say, and the future of, like, you know, introspection of your infrastructure is not necessarily we talk to robots about it, but it is very important to have it be social debugging, to have it be possible to level up the rest of the members of the team so you don't just have that one person who can solve a problem and they just drop a screenshot into Slack at the end and you're like, well, that graph is amazing and it's a smoking gun and we can see exactly what's going on now, but uh, how did you get there? The how did you get there and communicating um, to disseminate that kind of skill and information amongst people on your team, I think is really crucial Um, because of course the automated remediation stuff is very important to let us all sleep, (laughs) but making sure that knowledge isn't siloed in individual people actually brings us full circle back to the whole point of DevOps. Like there's two words in there, dev and ops, but it's not really just about developers and operations. It is about making sure that the full life cycle of operability of your systems and your software is visible to and accessible to your entire organization. And that you've, um, disseminated the control and also the responsibility of, you know, site reliability and operability to everyone because everybody has a stake in this. So yeah, to avoid single point of failure, if that person goes on vacation or to the hospital for some reason, then of course, yeah, I gotta, I gotta say, I mean, I like going canoeing in an area of Northern Minnesota called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area on the border with Canada and there's no cell phone uh, signal there. There's no cell towers. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it is paradise if you're an ops, but also you can't do it if your job is such that you can't ever really disconnect. And I think that if, you, uh, if you're willing to use Chaos Monkey on your systems, you should also be willing to let your lead operations person go on vacation someplace without cell signal. And if that doesn't work out for you, like, you have other problems. Because what if they win the lottery? I mean, I don't like thinking about getting hit by a bus. So I just imagine, what if they win the lottery and decide to move to an island with no internet? <laughs> you don't want that single point of failure. <laughs> yes, definitely. And after being in operations for 15 years, mm-hmm. you went on to work at Pivotal in the marketing department. 
And I saw that you mentioned this was at the time when <laughs> yeah. the popular hashtag, I look like an engineer, appeared. What aspect of marketing in a tech company were you interested in? Um, honestly, I, was, I had zero interest in marketing, and I was pretty sure that I would never work in marketing. Okay. Um, but my friend Andrew Clay Schaefer, who is one of the you know, core founders of the DevOps movement, uh, convinced me that I could help a lot of people by going and talking to customers uh, that were struggling with this uh, relationship between operations, you know, the IT operations, and then maybe the application development people at the organization, and they're probably at war, and they don't want to even be in the same meeting with you. So you have to have two different meetings 40 miles away. Not that that's ever happened. Oddly specific, because it has. And, like, that's the sort of thing that it was a very different but also exciting challenge. Like to be able to help people from the op side of the house, because there's an awful lot of DevRel, you know, developer advocate, that sort of thing, focused on developers out there. Mm -hmm. And there aren't so many people out there talking to and speaking the language of um, maybe your operations engineers that are a little bit entrenched and a little bit set in their ways and a little bit sure that this shiny new way that people want to do things is probably terrible and they, they don't want to believe and like helping them see and understand and believe how it can make their lives significantly better is a uh, is is an exciting challenge. So that's been fun. <laughs> or answering their concerns, for example, in Mexico, there's still people at companies that are not in the cloud because there's some sort of skepticism or they're concerned about the security and things like that. So having somebody technical answering those questions versus somebody that's not, can help bring more people to the cloud and they can all benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and you're right too, the idea of, I think uh, Andrew Clay Schaefer, my manager at Pivotal, says something along the lines of, you know, 80, maybe 90% of tech is basically tribalism and fashion. Like everyone wants to know what people like them are doing, however they define people like them. And if what they define people like them as is, uh, you know, people who do regular expression crosswords for fun and somebody like that shows up and tells them that it will be okay and that their job will be different, but they will still have a really fun job that they enjoy and that they can be challenged by and that they can learn at. And it's just going to look different than it looked in the past. Um, I think hearing that from somebody who appears to them to be a member of their tribe, because I sadly or happily am, <laughs> is a, it's a convincing, it's a convincing sort of oh, okay, this person who's like me in some sort of significant ways that are important to me is telling me that it's going to be okay. <laughs> and last question. You are host of the Arrested Dev DevOps podcast. Mm -hmm. What have you learned by podcasting that you haven't learned on other environments like working at a company or giving talks at conferences? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I think probably... I mean, other than, you know, shaking my tiny fist at audiovisual everything, which also comes with the conference realm. Um, okay. um, but I think probably it was surprising to me when people started coming up to me at conferences and saying hi and acting like they knew me. And at first I was like, hi, why don't I remember you? And then I realized that people become very familiar with your work. If you're podcasting, they take you with you with them on their daily commute, or they take you with them when they go for a run or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it's, 
you can reach people in ways that you wouldn't reach them otherwise because as a podcaster, you become part of their daily routine. And it's, I think it's really, it's empowering and it's also humbling to realize that you can reach and hopefully help and connect with a lot of people that way. And I wasn't really expecting that, but it's nice. Yes, I totally agree with this. <laughs> so Bridget, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much.